Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, live at Caveat in New York City. Oh my God, this is so fantastic. Again, thank you all for being vaccinated. I'm very happy to be here in front of you. I'm very happy to be vaccinated and feel safe in your presence. I want to talk about some psychology stuff today with special guest Tessa West, who is a doctor who knows lots of smart, cool things about jerks at work. She's just come out, well, it's coming out very soon, a book about this topic, and we're going to talk about things related to that and also see what kind of jerk you might be, what kind of jerks are at work, and how you can defend yourself against jerks at work and play a little bit of Game of Thrones. I want to first talk about something that's near and dear to me, which is cognitive biases, and I want to talk to you about how it relates to going from remote work to in-person work. And back. This audio comes from You Are Not So Smart, live at Caveat in New York City just a few weeks back. I'll be doing more shows there soon, so look out for that. And there will always be a live streaming option as well, so you can watch it from wherever you are. The people who run this venue are really amazing, smart, talented, competent human beings who do their jobs well. It's like Star Trek The Next Generation in there. They make amazing things, and you can see on their website that they have many other podcasts and experimental, sciencey, brainy, smart, and fascinating live shows appearing there many of which also offer live streaming, like Story Collider, The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, Vocabulary, The Complete Guide to Everything, and more. In fact, I hope to partner with some of those shows in the future as we do more live shows at Caveat. So check it out. It's caveat.nyc to see what they have on offer. Okay, I'm going to return to the audio of the live show now but I've skipped over the part where you needed to be there to understand what's going on. We played some psychology games and watched some videos and stuff like that while drinking and laughing, and then we hung out after. So I hope you join me the next time we do this live on stage at Caveat in New York City. Because we've gone from remote to in-person and back again, and who knows what's going to happen next, and it changes the psychology of what happens in individual brains and groups. We're going to do that with the fantastic... This is the answer, by the way, in case no one got it right. Dr. Tessa West, please join me on stage right here, Dr. Tessa West. Oh, boy. Okay. Does your microphone work well? I believe so. Uh, First of all, uh, let's find out who are you and what do you do? 
So I'm a social psychology professor, and what I do is I put people in really uncomfortable social situations, and then I see what they do. <laughs> like pretty well, much what I do. Well, well, give me a, what's an uncomfortable social situation that right. comes to mind? So let me give you an example. So imagine that we want to know how anxious people are when they interact with each other. They don't, they're not really comfortable telling you they're necessarily anxious. You know, maybe they actually want to pretend like they're really comfortable. They want to pretend like things are going great. How are we going to get them to really showcase that anxiety? We can do all kinds of weird things to them. So one weird thing we like to do is strap them up with a whole bunch of, you know, physiological sensors. Okay, so that's kind of the first thing. So we can kind of read what their body is doing. That tells us how, how they're responding physiologically. Um, and then what we do is we have them play a game where they have to read American Sign Language words that their interaction partner is signing to them. So if anyone knows ASL, you learn the alphabet, you know, with your hands, you can get a little card that tells you what A is and B is and so on. We don't just let them look at each other's hands, we actually make them put their hands in a box and feel each other's <laughs> hands. And it's really uncomfortable, but the best part is, how can we tell if they're actually anxious and really avoiding doing this? Because when they touch each other, we lose the signal from the physiological data. So we can tell if they're actually avoiding even feeling each other's hands. And that's a nice measure of interpersonal discomfort with a complete stranger that you just met off the street. This is very weird. It sounds very mad scientist, and I dig that. Yeah. What, what essential truth of the universe have you derived from this kind of research? Well, we know that people are less comfortable touching the hands of someone who has a different skin color than them. So even people who claim to not be racist, they claim to you know, hold these really positive views of everyone else around them, they're just less comfortable doing this. We know that men who score high on homophobia won't touch the hand of another man in a box, these <laughs> kinds of things. So it's a good way to like, get little subtle signals of discomfort and tend to really kind of pull out people's attitudes. I dig this. Uh, and you do a lot, you have a background in researching status hierarchies and things like that as well? Yes. So we love putting people in groups and having them kind of duke it out to try to influence each other. You know, um, how coordinated are they? Who speaks first? Who's the loudest? Who gets the group kind of organized to sort of, you know, get on task? These kinds of things. We love to go to other countries um, like the UAE and have people do this, but they come from these different nationalities and we tell them, well, your country's kind of, you know, a great country and your country's not so great. It actually scores really low on, you know, what's called the Human Development Index. I'm so sorry you come from this not so awesome country. Now go negotiate with each other and see what they do. What do they, what do, they do? Uh, the people from the, the, the good countries, um, the high countries on this development index, they actually bend over backwards and try to be really, really nice to the people who come from these lower status countries. And it's interesting because these are all students at NYU Abu Dhabi, so they're all smart. They're all really kicking ass. Um, but they feel really uncomfortable when they're reminded of, of how good they have it. You know, you come from Sweden, you know, and you come from Afghanistan. Now go do this thing. They, they really try to overcome um, whatever higher status that hmm. they have just walking into this interaction. So if I'm, gather, if I'm hearing you correctly, this sort of status algorithm background processing thing is always happening in our heads at all times? You know, I'm a status researcher, so I'm going to say yes. We're always sizing other people up to figure out what their status is. 
whether we should try to trump them or whether we should ignore them. Um, if anyone's ever been to um, a, a club or a party or even a workplace event and they have someone stare at their chest to see you know, what their name is or who they are and then walk away, they're just trying to figure out what your status is. Game of Thrones. It's Game of Thrones. The world is Game of Thrones. New York City is Game of Thrones. Okay. I'm going to say Game of Thrones a lot because looking over this book that we're going to talk about, I thought about Game of Thrones quite a bit. Uh, you have a book that's coming out called Jerks at Work. Uh, obviously, this leads, I'm segueing into your book right now. Um, what made you want to write a book about this? I'm assuming this research, how did it get into the workplace for you? Yeah, I mean, this is a good question. So when you do what I do, when you study how awkward people are for a living, and then you start to tell people this is what you do, you know, you go to the doctor or you're sitting on an airplane, <laughs> All they want to do is tell you their jerk at work stories. Oh, you know, I have this problem with someone. Can you help me solve this problem? So actually my interest in writing a book on this came more from hearing different people's stories. And, and I can kind of tell you sort of what put me over the edge and really made me decide this is something that people actually need. Okay. Um, I went to the doctor, just a routine doctor's appointment. And, you know, making small taco. How's NYU? It's fine. It's fine. He said, you know, what are you up to these days? I said, I think I'm, I might write a book about jerks at work. Oh, that sounds interesting. Then it got really quiet, did his business. At the end of the appointment, he said, okay, it's really important that I um, meet you in my office afterwards. There's something I need to talk to you about. And I thought to myself, oh, shit, it's finally happened. <laughs> he found the tumor in my body, you know, like whatever it is. Um, so I get in there, and he's sitting there. He's typing at his computer, and he doesn't say anything. And I'm panicking. I could feel my heart pounding out of my chest. And he turns the screen around and goes, what do you think of this email? My <laughs> sister got this from this guy at work, and he just dominates the email chains. He's the first person to respond to any email. You know, he just takes over the agenda for everything. And I said, well, you know, what does the boss think of this? And she, he goes, the boss is just shit out of luck, has no idea what to do about this person. I really need you to help me tell me what to tell my sister because she's driving me crazy. This is my gynecologist, right? <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, jeez. Okay, so maybe people really do need this book. You know, all kinds of people from, you know, graduating from college all the way up to the top. They just have really no idea how to handle these everyday kind of problems at work. Yeah, yeah. Looking through it, I, I, when we get to it, like I've had backstab experiences when I was working in an office environment. I was like, oh, man, I wish I'd had this advice that you have because you have advice on how to deal with some of these things. <laughs> We're going to get to that, but I'm going to do the same thing the gynecologist did with the email thing, uh, which is I want to get your advice on two things that you have written about in the past. One is how you use psychological, I'm not going to call them tricks, let's say the vast body of knowledge we've derived from psychological research to get a raise and also to determine whether or not you should lie about if you're sick and not going to work that day. So first, <laughs> I want to talk about how to get a raise. Uh, you've written about this, and I've got some charts up here we can look at together. Uh, some of these, uh, this is so we know we're in a new section of the show. Uh, <laughs> asking for a raise is what we're going to talk about for a little while. So uh, some of these are really wild. Like, what's going on here? The, the higher up you go in the status hierarchy, the more likely you'll get a raise. Is that what I'm seeing here? Why? People are really terrified to ask for raises. I, I mean, they, they feel like if they ask for a raise, and this, just, this comes from, if, you know, if you're walking into a brand new job, but also in an existing job where you feel like you're doing well, your boss is just going to fire you on the spot. So they have these lay theories of being rejected that aren't really founded in reality. Um, they have 
this ultimate fear of rejection accompanied by like zero skills training. So I don't know about the people in the audience, but I was never really taught how to ask for a raise, ever. Kind of had to figure it out, you know, when I was 35 or something like that. So people have a fear, and what you're seeing here is as you climb up, the, those executives that have asked for a raise, they got that far because they've learned how to ask for a raise early, right? And learning early, it's the Matthew effect, begets kind of getting better at that skill over time. Um, they're also really bad at perspective taking and understanding when to go to a boss to ask for these things. And then I said the last thing is if you've ever had one bad experience or knew someone who knew someone that had a bad experience, that's enough just to scare you away completely from ever trying to do this. Mm -hmm. Well, you've got some really good advice. Uh, here's some things from the statistics that I saw in your work. Uh, surveys show that only 39% of employees get the raise that they ask for, and usually it's because they're told there are budgetary constraints. Yeah. Uh, not whether or not you deserve it. And the you say that if you want to get a raise, the bottom line is to stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about your boss. I don't want to do that. Nope, nobody wants to do that. So how do I overcome that, and what's the secret sauce? Yeah. I mean, if anyone's ever stood in front of a bathroom mirror and rehearsed the speech they're going to give to their boss about why they want to raise, what do you typically do? We list all the reasons why we're great. I did this thing for you on time. I went above and beyond. I came in for 14 weekends. Look at my numbers. It's like me, 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 right? Mm -hmm. It's all about you. Your boss doesn't care that much about those things. I mean, that's great you're doing those things. You're not going to get fired because you did those things. What you have to think about is what their boss is going to say or how you're going to help them or benefit them in some way if they are to give you this raise. You have to perspective take, and we don't love taking the perspectives of the people in charge of us because we feel like, why should we have to? They have all these wonderful things already coming to them. But if they don't have you know, social capital, their mm. boss sort of hates them or puts them on an island or doesn't listen to them or they legitimately don't have the money you know, all these things are actually going to affect your ability to get that raise. Mm -hmm. And so you better figure out how you're going to sell yourself to that boss to get that raise. What are you going to say to them that you can do? What do you know, they're going to think, what are you going to do for me if I give you this raise? You better you, come up with a few things. Well, you've got three questions you should ask yourself. I'm going to get to those in a second. Uh, I do want to mention that <laughs> you, you told me that uh, people who are higher ranking in status hierarchies in the, in the workplace generally don't think very much about the people who are lower ranking at all, whereas people in the lower ranking think a lot about the people in the higher ranking. Uh, I don't like that either. That makes me feel like some madman feelings. That, so that's <laughs> real strange too. Uh, but I wanted to look at these graphs because these tell something about this. These are the number one refusal reasons. Usually it's budgetary constraints. Am I reading that correctly? That's what you're told. Uh, and then also when you're negotiating your salary, this is uh, the top reasons why people don't negotiate their salary. Uh, most people uh, say they're happy with the salary they were offered instead of pushing it. And uh, when can a, a new salary be discussed? This is another chart that should demonstrate what people generally do and what you should do. I want to get to these questions because they're, uh, they're counterintuitive for me. You said these three questions. I'm going to lob these up like softballs. You're going to knock them out of the park. Um, one is ask yourself how much social status does your boss have and find out your boss's success rate. Help us make sense of that, please. Okay. So we all think our bosses have more social status than us, and that's kind of usually where we stop, right? They're in charge of us. We can kind of feel that power all the time. But everyone exists in some hierarchy, right? So you might have a boss whose boss above them loves them and wants them to succeed and will give them whatever they ask to succeed. 
Or you might have a boss who's stuck on an island, right? No one actually really likes this person. They're not invited to the social networking events. They're kind of, you know, <laughs> on the periphery at work. We tend to not think of our bosses as these people, just like little kids don't think of their parents as real people until they hit a certain point. <laughs> right, right. You know, they exist insofar as they have control over us. And then we kind of forget about it. It takes years of being in a workplace before you think to yourself, shit, no one likes my boss. I didn't realize <laughs> this. But, you know, I remember this happening to me. I used to work in retail, and I went out to dinner once, and um, I saw all the managers out to eat except for mine, um, you know, with a buyer who was in town. And that was the moment I had... I realize I have to get out of this department because everybody can't stand my manager. So you have to know where your boss falls in this hierarchy. If they tell you there's budgetary reasons, that could be because they don't like you, it could be because there really are budgetary reasons, or it could be because their boss gave them $4 to spend for the next year because they don't respect them. You know, you got to figure all that out. Yeah, you say that knowledge is power here. So, like, understanding the social status is very important, and it's also important to form connections with people above you in, in this stage of the, of the game. Uh, and to be very transparent with colleagues. Tell me a little bit about this transparent with colleagues thing. It seems schemey and, and You weird. mean when, when, when we're talking about money? Yeah. Those kinds of things? Yeah, yeah. So I know this is a controversial statement, but I do think that uh, we should be open about how much money we make with people mm -hmm. that are also in the organization and are recently hired and want to know what their potentials are. There's a temptation to sort of keep that information really close to us and not tell anyone what we make. It, it's like telling them what we weigh or what our birthday is or whatever other you know dark secrets we feel like we have. I'm a firm believer in being really open about mm. how much money I make. Don't ask. Please don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a professor. It's like $4. Um, <laughs> because we're never going to know what negotiation tactics other people use that worked if we don't do that. And I actually saw a shift in my own workplace once the assistant professors figured this out. They're like, you know, the only people who don't want us talking about how much we make are the, the people at the top. Because yeah. they want to be able to tell us, like, we can't give you a raise, then you would make more money than everybody else at your level, and we would know that they're lying. Yeah. So there is, like, this, I mean, you've got to balance it with, like, people's competitive, you know, um, Machiavellian tendencies and so forth. You don't want to tell, like, that guy what you make. But most people, I think, can actually benefit from learning what people made when they were hired. How did this, how did this norm come about? How did this thing where we don't talk about this come about? Um, well, Jay Van Babel, who's in the audience, was the first person to do this, to just tell me what he made. And then I, and then I went to three other people, and I just said, what do you make? <laughs> and they weirdly told me. And I told them. And then I realized I was getting paid $15,000 less than them. And then I asked for a raise and just got it. Like, wow. I didn't have a counteroffer. I had lunch with the boss's boss, and I said, I don't think it's fair what I'm getting paid. Here are the salaries. And this, this also comes, when it comes to asking for a raise, you better bring some data with you. Yeah. You can't just whine and say, I deserve it. You better come with your spreadsheet of what everyone else-ish is making, in, you know? Yeah. So you can say, this is why I should get this raise. It's unfair that I'm getting paid X dollars less than these 10 people. And then they'll shift uncomfortably in their seat and think, why are you people talking about money? You know, we good. never did that sort of thing. Well, this gathering of information, which feels very Game of Thronesy to me, uh, leads to the second thing you say you should ask yourself, which is ask yourself, uh, does your request cost your boss, what does your request cost your boss in social capital? Yeah. What does this mean? So anytime bosses give people raises, 
it's like cutting off their little toe, right? The money has to come from somewhere. And usually that me, and, and it depends on how much they love their little toe and whether that toe can grow back. This metaphor is not working at all. Maybe like a tail on a lizard. Okay, I'm just gonna, okay. So. They give your boss like a gecko. <laughs> like a gecko. They have to get the money from somewhere. So it's not their own bank account. So they have to ask up. Pretty much everyone always has to ask up you know, to get that money, or they have to look at their own spending and think, okay, if I'm going to give this person a raise, who am I going to take that money from, either in the future or currently? Mm-hmm. The, the cuts come from somewhere. And so the more you can think about money is this zero-sum resource that is, it will cost them something. If they ask for this favor now and they get it, then the next person that comes along, they're not going to be able to ask again, you know, for another five years. At, at mm-hmm. NYU, it's, it's apartment size. So, <laughs> yeah, tell me you what. know, you get a, you get a three-bedroom as a, as a chair of an academic department. You give someone three bedrooms, which in the real world sounds like normal living, but in New York City, that's basically a mansion. Mm-hmm. Um, then that means, like, you owe someone something for a really long time, mm. and no one else is getting another bedroom mm-hmm. for many, many years. <laughs> you know, you have to wait for a new chair. Like, literally, you have to wait for that guy to retire or die or, or leave and someone new come in who gets their own three bedrooms to, to doll out. Okay, this is good advice. Uh, you also uh, talk about being very creative with your request, which is, uh, you know, there may be things like uh, you could ask for getting your money incrementally over several months, maybe get permission to do outside work. Uh, these are things that all seem to be like, I have to do a lot of homework before I even go in the thing. This seems to be the overarching advice. Am I following? Yes, you have to do a lot of homework. Um, you can put your raise on layaway. I think I've done that. Um, one of the trickier things you can do if you're really conniving is if you know that your boss is leaving in a certain period of time, you can get that guarantee and they only are responsible for part of it and the new person who comes mm. in is actually going to be stuck right. dealing with this that budgetary. So, I mean, this That's is really... That's Game of Thrones. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's, it's idiosyncratic to, to certain industries because usually it's like, one person's in charge for many, many years, but insofar as they can just pass the buck to someone else, and you know that, mm-hmm. and you figure out exactly what that is, and you can be flexible about that. Um, I'm also a huge fan of offering up to do things that they can't find anyone else to do because time is money. And if you say, look, I'll do this thing that I know you've asked 14 other people to do, then they will give you that raise just to save themselves 20 mm. hours of, of you know knocking down doors. Right, this is your third... Your third piece of advice was what, ask yourself what problems does uh, your request solve for your gecko boss? Yes. So uh, is this, I'm assuming we're in that category now. Uh, is there anything else you could say about that very particular question? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this comes down to knowing what scratches your boss's itches. That also sounds gross. Um, but what favors they owe people and what things that they're really struggling to get done. Mm. And you know what's kind of funny is sometimes what takes your boss 20 hours might actually only take you five because you're actually better at certain things <laughs> than yeah. your boss, right? So imagine that your boss has to write like some weekly newsletter or something like that. And they suck at this. They're really out of practice. They don't even know how to do this. They're doing it while multitasking. But you, you know, you could do this in 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Figure out what those little things are that your boss needs help with okay. and come and offer up a few of those things. And then that raise is going to actually sound like a major time saver mm-hmm. to them. And uh, you mentioned in your work that it's important when you're doing this, uh, the faster those benefits come to the boss, the better. 
uh, and also take into account that human beings are loss averse. How do those two things mix together like peanut butter and chocolate? Yeah, I mean, so the loss aversion thing, it, when you ask for a raise, you're thinking, I'm so great, I deserve this. They're thinking, okay, now I'm going to have to completely redo my whole budget because of this person, and what's it going to cost me? You want to offer things that are quick fixes right now. Um, no one likes things promised to them in two years. I mean, most of us don't do anything that's not going to show up in two years. I mean, mm-hmm. imagine if you just drank carrot juice for three weeks and God came down from the mountain and said, in two years, you'll see some weight loss. <laughs> but you're going to have to hold out for that, uh-huh. right? But, you know, no one likes to hear that, and bosses are the same way. Okay. So figure out what those in-the-moment things are to sort of counter that loss aversion. Okay, I feel confident now that Everyone here is going to ask for a raise. You're all going to come back and you're going to all have raises. Right. And if you, I I will have in the show notes for this episode at the website all the stuff we just talked about so that you can use this and make a sheet for yourself and get very games thrown about it. I want to get closer into jerks at work now because we're going to talk about some jerk stuff. Uh, We've got advice about this. Here's the next section lying at work. Okay. Um, As you have written, despite our moral objections to dishonesty, lying is incredibly common. Most people lie around two to four times a day. And in the workplace, no exception, lying begins at the application stage and ends at the exit interview with lots of dishonesty in between. Um, let's look at some charts together, shall we? Uh, these are how often people tell lies at work. Uh, what's going on here? What's, what do you see in this chart? The, it seems like we lie pretty much constantly is what it looks like to me. Uh, also, this is one of my favorites. This is when people lie. Uh, Mondays and Fridays. That's Don't when ask people, lie. people important questions on Mondays or Fridays. And here's, here are the lies that people most often tell at work, combined with a second question. How, how bad do you think this lie is? Uh, this is the number one. I'm not feeling very well today. And most people say that's harmless. But then there's another one, which is, I already have plans after work. Sorry, I can't go to your thing. Uh, that's just as equal. Some people say that's pretty harmful. I never got your email message is one of my favorites here, too. Uh, and here's my, my very favorite, 33%. You look good today. <laughs> that's just because we spend most of our lives at work, so the lies are usually like of this nature. This is so great. I... <laughs> Yeah, I can take more work. No, I can't. Uh, these are so good. So these are the most common lies. I'm sure everyone here has, has done one of these. Uh, I feel bad about the fact that I was probably on the receiving end of you look good today. Uh, but I definitely have said I'm not feeling well when I felt, I just didn't feel like going to work. That was what I actually felt. Um, oh, dirt quiz comes up next after this. So get ready. Okay. So let me talk about lying with you for a second. Um, not all lying is harmless, as I think is what, you, what you're trying to say here, or what you said in the, in the work that I looked at. Let me talk, just go through a few of these before we get to the big jerk quiz. Uh, lying to land the job. Uh, 75% of hiring managers have called a candidate lying on a resume, usually about their education or qualifications, even though that's something that's easy to fact check. Okay, why do people do that and what's the harm? You know, I recently read an article that popped up in my feed on LinkedIn that said, you don't actually need to have any qualifications to apply for that job. So, in air quotes. So people, I think, are actually believing it's pretty normative to, to fudge your qualifications. You know, say you worked a couple more years than you actually did. You know, say you got a PhD when you really got a master's. It's incredibly normative for people to lie at work. And there's lots of lay theories that if you're to outcompete other people, you absolutely have to play that game. If you're the only honest person, 
you know, it's kind of like a dating website. If we're completely honest about ourselves, no one would go out with us, right? <laughs> At least me. I mean, no one wants, no one wants like the real true, ver- like you got to be like six months in, right? Before you start to leak all oh, that yeah. stuff. It's the same thing with a resume. I mean, people hire professional resume writers to, to make them look better than they are. And what those people really do is, is mostly just lie. Mm-hmm. You know, they mostly pad or, you know, add some BS here and there to, to make you look better. The problem with this is people are starting to get really wise about it. And so um, there's lots of um, AI programs, artificial intelligence programs. LinkedIn creates one that fact checks resumes. Mm-hmm. So a lot like educators um, feed students papers into programs to make sure they didn't plagiarize. These things now exist for the workplace in you know, lots of companies. I think almost all the Fortune 500s have purchased these things that will fact check. So they, you, will get, you will get caught. It just depends on whether your workplace cares or not. <laughs> well, that's good to know. And some don't. Um, most of the lying after that comes from lying to get ahead. Uh, uh-huh. uh, you, in your work, you found that uh, surveys show that 37% of managers tell a lie once a week or more compared to 28% of entry-level employees. Yeah. Uh, and most, feel, most people feel that lies to get ahead are justified. Um, lying to improve your chances to receive a raise or promotion was seen as not at all justifiable, though, uh, and lying to avoid being reprimanded, though, was considered uh, slightly justifiable. Seventy-six percent of people say that's slightly justifiable. What about lying to get ahead? What do we What do we know about this, and what's the harm that it can cause? You got to be really careful when you lie about your qualifications to get ahead, because if someone just believes you, you're going to end up in a situation where you have a lot more responsibility than you actually should be granted. Mm. I do want to say, though, that. We've spent a lot of time kind of crapping on employees for their lying to get ahead. And everyone lies, you know, not everyone. Most people at some point have lied on a resume in some way or another. But bosses lie too. And the main thing that they lie about during interviews and early on are leadership opportunities for people. You know, so they're bullshitting you about all these opportunities you're going to have to get ahead. You're lying about all your qualifications. It just creates this perfect <laughs> storm of living in an alternative reality that's never going to actually happen for anyone yeah. in this organization. Um, I, and I do feel usually in every work environment I've been in was an alternate reality where nothing was actually true or real. <laughs> uh, and, and thankfully, your work confirms that for me. And my, my bias was, uh, my hunches were confirmed. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, lying, lying to achieve work-life balance. I feel like this is what I've done most of my life when it comes to lying at work. Uh, you found, or the research that you cited found that uh, most people lie about how many hours they're actually working. Um, uh, one study found that the higher, uh, the, the higher up, the more hours that people claim they work, the bigger the lie. Uh, people who claim to work 75 hours a week actually usually worked around 50. Um, and, of course, most of the time, uh, people who are at work are, say they're working, they're often playing on the Internet. Um, what do we know about this sort of lying about what's going on with work-life balance? Why do we do this so much, and, and what are the implications of it? I think this problem's really gotten out of control since the pandemic when we're asked to do a million things all at one time. There's kind of like this understanding among people in the workplace that in order to have any time to yourself, you're going to have to lie and mm. feel, feel like you've justified um, you know, doing the thing that you did. No one's working 75 hours a week. Maybe they're at work for that amount of right, time. Right, right, right. Um, you know, and this, this idea of this kind of exponential separation, the, the more hours you say, the bigger the inflation. Um, I, a lot of this is just pressure coming down on people and feeling like they, that that's the one thing that they can lie about and no one will know. 
right? Mm -hmm. So you can't really lie about your numbers if you're in sales or what you've produced. You can lie about how long it took you to do it. Mm -hmm. Lawyers have always been really good at this, right? <laughs> you know, they, they have hours that they charge clients and they can be 10 hours or 20 hours or whatever, yeah. um, sort of lying about how long things take us is something that we learn how to do. I mean, my kid's eight. He got really good at lying about how long <laughs> it takes him to do things yeah. um, so that he could get some more free iPad time or whatever. I just feel like I've, 40, I, 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 most of the jobs I've been at, it didn't take 40 hours to do what I, I had to do in a week. Yeah, like 20. Right. So, But you, you make me sit here, so I have to do something. Right. And that's how you get the programs. You can press one button, and it flips from Reddit to uh, looks like a spreadsheet, and everybody's using that at the same time. <laughs> and everyone's lying, and nobody's telling the truth, and none of us is in a real world. We're all yeah. at work not doing what we said we're doing. The only way to get, to get around this lying about how long it takes you to do things is don't force people to show up to the office just for the sake of being there. Right. You know, um, if we switch to a world where you could go home as soon as you got the thing done, people would get their shit together and they'd finish by three every day. How do we make that world happen? A lot of people are already doing this. A lot of organizations are already doing this. Yeah. Um, I think you have to be really trusting of the people in charge yeah. to actually showcase that um, and, you know, try it out. Try it out for a week, see how it goes. Yeah. But I, we are, at least in the States, we are you know, very much married to this nine to five idea, even if no one's actually doing anything. And you know what? The truth is a lot of bosses like to see people around, even if they're not actually working, mm -hmm. because it gives this veneer of importance <laughs> that like, you know, the butter's being churned or whatever. And it's, it's just more of like this like sense of officeness, not productivity that people often crave, especially Veneers of importance. Officeness. Veneer of importance. Um, this segues to what I talked about in the very beginning, and after that, we'll start talking about jerks. Um, I was talking about how work, being a, 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 a solitary reasoner is different from being a collaborative uh, reasoner. Uh, and working remotely can make us sometimes feel like when, when we're on the internet, and we feel like we're gathered together in a group of people, but really reasoning by ourselves, and then taking the, the product, the conclusions of that alone reasoning, and dumping it into a pile of other alone reasoning, that looks like a big pile of together reasoning that's not. So I feel like that ha can happen with remote work. I know you have uh, some thoughts on like the difference between, because uh, what, what I want to say, what I want to have happen is, hey, well, nobody has to go to work anymore. We can just work at home and use our laptops and be at the coffee shop and get everything done. What do we know about the, uh, what happens psychologically and what can be leveraged in that in between remote work and in-person work? Yeah. What's the value of in-person work versus remote work? I and mean, this is sort of like the question, right, that we're all trying to find the answer to. So as a social psychologist who studies how people interact and get ahead, I'm, not, I, I'm a little bit biased in that I think coming in to the office is really important, but not for the reasons that people think. Okay, this is, um, I don't like this, so please convince me otherwise. I'm gonna do, you think it sucks, it's really why. Okay, so we think that we all need to come in because we work more efficiently in the office. And that could be true. I mean, there were times when I was like literally working in the bathtub to find like alone time during the <laughs> pandemic. But the real reason why we need to come to the office to work is because a lot of how we communicate is subtle. It's nonverbal. It doesn't just involve our faces on a screen. It involves our body. It involves things like where people sit. You know, you notice when your boss leans towards someone and whispers something at the end of a meeting. We look to see who has coffee with whom. And things like invisible work, so those tasks you do that no one really asks you to do and you don't really report on, but you're doing them in your office and if people walk by and see you and ask, they'll learn about it. When you're doing all that stuff at home, you miss 
all of this stuff, right? So we have our little screens. So we have communication between the person on the screen and their audience. But what we miss is how two people communicate with each other. You know, so I miss this a lot in, in meetings. I would be able to roll my eyes to my colleague, Madeline, anytime someone was annoying. And then people could look at Madeline and I and figure out that we're friends. But now if I roll my eyes, it just goes into the void. You know, <laughs> I, I look like there's something in my eye. Like, no one does that. Rolling my eyes into the void. Yeah, I roll my eyes into the void. And I developed this really bad habit during the pandemic, which was when someone started to talk too much in a meeting we got really inefficient at interrupting the person and getting back on task. I would just hit the mute button, yeah. the actual mute button. Mm -hmm. You know, so the things we miss about the office are these like subtle forms of nonverbal behavior, communication, posture, um, and then the like the small little bits, like who we talk to in the hallway. So social networking happens informally. It n almost never happens formally. Mm. We try to make it happen formally, and bosses are like, let me introduce you <laughs> to the new C-suite. And people are like, hello, sir. But that's not actually how we network. Right. We network because the, the tech guy comes to our office, fixes our computer, shoots the shit for 20 minutes, and tells us all the office gossip. Yeah, that's, the, the that's break room really is learn. where a lot of stuff happens. The break happens. room, you know. I mean, that, that's where, where the real juice happens. Yeah. So we miss all that. And, and then what you end up with are the remote people who are like, I am staying home. I'm not feeling this. The office people, they have two totally different shared realities mm -hmm. and different knowledge bases. Mm -hmm. And then the in-person people have all this you know, rich sort of knowledge about who likes whom and who the boss disrespects and what it takes to get ahead. And the remote people have like their emails and their, <laughs> and their once a week Zooms, you know. Right. Okay, so we're going to go back. There's a lot of a lot of us are going back to the office where the Game of Thrones stuff happens, and to do that well, we need to understand Jerks at Work, which is your book, and we're going to start talking about that with a jerk quiz. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by. BetterHelp. And I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. 
I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time, at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything. And you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. Okay, so I this is audience participation, but you don't have to say anything or do anything. You can keep your answers private. 
Uh, but these questions come from something that you created, a very large list of questions. I've only taken out three. And we're going <laughs> <we're gonna> to bring <laughs> up some questions, and I want you to imagine this. Reading these earlier today actually made me very angry at uh, people that don't exist that popped into my head. So thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> okay. So here's question number one. And I want you to imagine this hypothetical scenario. So uh, you're at a party thrown by your boss to celebrate a big promotion that you've received. And uh, for the last six months, you and your mentee, Sasha, have been working closely together to close a big deal. Sasha now claims that you only got this promotion, you only got where you're at because you stole all of her ideas and never gave her credit for them. So you, at this party for your promotion, you can see her seething at the bar. What do you do? Here are your choices, okay? I don't want you to just pick one of these and keep it in your head. We're gonna uh, look at answers and what they mean in a second. A, you can just ignore Sasha and have some fun, because you know, why does she have to be you know, such a party pooper? And she'll probably get over this in a little while anyway. B, give a big speech thanking Sasha for a whole bunch of things she didn't do to create the appearance of support. If she complains about you again, now she'll come across as ungrateful. C, bite the bullet and have the awkward conversation with Sasha where you sort out what uh, happened, and this way you will clear the air and things won't be simmering anymore. Or D, find all of the socially connected people and make sure they know that Sasha is full of shit. How dare she try to smear your reputation? Okay, likely one of these feels like something you might actually do. Here's what this says about you according to Dr. Tessa West. Uh, if you are doing A, that means you're just going through the motions. D is you're a classic jerk. B is you're a conniving trickster. Probably you have a dark triad thing going on and you're like Littlefinger <laughs> in Game of Thrones. <laughs> And uh, C, you are the ideal coworker. Okay, before we get started, uh, this conniving trickster, classic jerk stuff, I feel like we should say, what is the dark triad, just so that's out, and for anyone who's never heard it, what is that, and how does that play into what we're going to talk about here? The dark triad. So what are, what are the personality traits in the dark? Sociopath? Huh? Machia else? Machiavellianism. Machiavellianism, and, which is uh, a key piece for jerks. And narcissism. And narcissism. So a lot of the jerks that you'll encounter have like a couple of these pieces, right? A few of them have this unique combination. I mean, my favorite jerk at work is what I like to call the kiss up, kick down coworker. Um, they're the one that really can just climb to the top by being really conniving and tricky and the boss always loves them and it's very infuriating. <laughs> um, so I have these different types. Conniving trickster is a couple different types of jerks at work, sort of the classic is right. this. Uh, uh, you know, the kiss up, kick down. Yeah, we'll get to that. But there's a couple others. What, what about, what is this going through the motions category? So often our intuition is just to kind of sit out problems. Um, and we don't typically think of people who do nothing about problems as jerks. But when you do this over and over again, you're kind of contributing to the problem. You're contributing to the culture of jerks. Uh -huh. So a lot of the questions <laughs> in this survey I put in my book are about people who are like, ooh, that was bad, but I'm not, gonna, I'm not getting involved in that. Uh -huh. Or you know, when someone's mad at them, especially if your boss says, say, your, you know, your employee comes to you and says, you're micromanaging me, you're driving me crazy, and you just you hide from them, right? Or you lock your door, you turn off your light. <laughs> this kind of just totally avoidant, conflict avoidant. Um, confrontation yeah. avoidant types. I'm mad at Sasha, by the way, and I don't yeah. know Sasha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I don't, I don't know what I would do. I feel like maybe I would clear the air. I don't know if I could go. We so all far. want to clear the air, but most of us don't. Actually. <laughs> I'm sorry, but in, I in at, fact, the reason why the is because it's really hard. <laughs> you, no one wants to do that. I mean, half of what my book is about is how you actually clear the air with people. Okay, okay. Being a, you know. All right, so I want you to think about this. Whatever you answered is starting to create a, a psychological profile in your mind of who you are. Okay, so number. Two, here's another question from uh, the ones that you put together. 
your boss promised you when you relocated offices you would get a nice big one with natural light and vaulted ceilings but on the day of the big move you learned the office is small and awkward and the office you were promised was given to this new person who was just hired named Kyle your boss tells you to sort when you bring this to your boss your boss says hey you and Kyle work this out well first of all that makes me very upset with this imaginary boss who I now hate and so here are your choices that these will reveal to you what kind of jerk you may be a uh, tell Kyle this is a mistake this office is yours, Here, then ask for the keys. Uh, B, subtly express to your boss that if he doesn't sort this out, uh, you might lose interest in helping him with that new initiative he's excited about. C, complain about your boss to the CEO, John. The two of you have kids on the same softball team and your buddies now. Surely John can fix this. And D, approach Kyle and feel him out for a deal in exchange for the office Connect him with people at work, show him tricks of the trade, make sure his voice is heard in meetings, and what days of the week are the best to meet with the boss. Here are what your answers reveal about you. If you're A or C, you are a jerk. <laughs> if you chose B, you're a little finger. And if you're D, you are the ideal coworker. Okay, I'm gonna do one more question. I want you to keep these in your heart and think about what kind of horrible person you might be. Here's the third one. Your boss asked you to join a working group on planning the transition back to in-person work. You care about this issue a lot. The first job of the group is to collect data to see what people's opinions are. You're the only person with the expertise to collect the data and process it. Your boss turns to you with a look of desperation. What do you do? Now, people with dark triad love when someone looks at them with a look of desperation. And, and, and they're like, they're like, hmm, so now, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Here are your options. Offer to create a workplace survey and share the data with everyone, but keep the passwords to yourself, along with the instructions how to process the data. Uh, your survey, your business. B, offer to help train two other people to collect the data and process it. You don't want to be the only person at work who knows how to do this. C, ignore your boss's request. That's his problem. He didn't hire anybody else who knows what they're doing. You didn't do that. And D, offer to create the survey, but only if you get to run the meetings and make up all the procedures. The survey will be a lot of work. So you should be offered some power in return. Okay, this one's really awful uh, because I was like, mm, I don't You're torn, know. right? I don't know. I'm very torn on what to do. And here's what happens when you pick one. C, you're the person that's just letting things go by. You're not participating. A, you're a jerk. D, you're a conniving, possible dark triad, little finger type. And B is the ideal coworker. Tell me a little bit about what this says about a person, these strange choices. Uh, why would D be the one that may, makes you a trickster so much? So what I like about this particular question is that we can all feel ourselves wanting to answer in a way that maybe wouldn't make us look the best at work. <laughs> right. You know, if the answers were sort of obviously wrong and bad, no one would ever pick the bad thing. Yes, right? yes. So I actually, every answer that I chose was something that at some point in my life I would have done. I would have <laughs> felt inclined to do. Um, there's nothing wrong with wanting to gain power at work. I think taking advantage of situations like this to do it probably isn't the best way mm. to showcase your power. In fact, um, you know, I talk in my book about a, a type called the bulldozer who just does, pushes a lot to get ahead. And one thing that this person often does is offer to help people with things that no one else wants to do. And they gain power really early 
and they get they hold things you know over the boss like I'm the only one that knows how to read the resumes or run the new program or can figure <laughs> out the software or you, you need know, me. no you need me and they make themselves dependent and the reality is we often like those people because we don't want to do the shit that they've offered to do <laughs> no one else wants to do this thing yeah. right um, and, and this is where these types of individuals tend to really thrive in these situations. So if anyone ever has that tendency to say, okay, I really do actually want to hold on to some power, and you know what, I'm not really getting it the kind of old-fashioned way. Mm-hmm. No one really respects me that much. I mean, no one really says that to themselves. But imagine you had a real frank conversation with yourself. I'm not really getting ahead. The boss isn't promoting me. I don't get invited out to stuff. But I do know how to run this new software program. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what it's gonna. That's exactly what I'm gonna do to get ahead. That's mm-hmm. how I'm gonna get my foot in the door um, and make them dependent upon me. And you know, we've all probably been in a low place in our lives where we're like, that. That's what I'm gonna do. That's the strategy I'm gonna try. Okay, I want to get into this uh, this book. And by the way, I want you to take a look. If you answered all jerk questions, think about yourself and your life for a minute, please. <laughs> Especially if you did, the, if you're the BBD, I don't know why. I don't know. That's the person I'm really concerned about. If that's you, you know, we'll talk. Uh, you can you can seek counseling, and we can see what we can do about this. Uh, but also, you're a scary person, and you should be careful in other parts of your life. I I um, I look at this book that you've got here, Jerks at Work, and we're going to go through the different kinds of jerks. Um, but I think about how I mean, I know the Stanford Prison Experiment has been largely debunked in a lot of ways, but I feel like every workplace is the Stanford Prison Experiment in some way. <laughs> Because the context of different workplaces will cause these personality types to emerge. Because you've created a taxonomy of these assholes. So you've got this asshole taxonomy that are personality types that will emerge in workplaces. And something you've said to me before is that these are people who do things that are, you know, sort of repugnant, but they're not repugnant enough to get them fired. So they get right up to the line and stop, and we have to deal with them. And they, they create these nice psychological profiles that all of us have seen and felt and some of you may be so you have advice about what to do to outsmart and out game of thrones them each one at a time and that's what i want to talk about are you into it yeah okay i'm here for it all right the first one we're going to talk about is the gaslighter so i'm going to ask you for for each of these a definition and a description and you can give me examples and then we're going to talk about what to do about them in in the context of the workplace What's the gaslighter and what do they do? So a gaslighter is a person who lies, but we've talked about lying. A lot of people lie, right? Mm -hmm. Their lying is different. They lie on a grand scale with the intent to create a a false reality for the person that they're lying to. So it's not just everyday small lies. It's actually creating an entire workplace world that's not founded in reality. Mm -hmm. You know, why would they do this? Often the reason why they do this is because they're trying to get away with something that they know is naughty, and they need (laughs) help with that, right? And the only way that we can get away with things, like, you know, making stuff up or lying about our numbers, is by recruiting employees to believe that narrative for us. Sometimes they do this by threatening you, by threatening to cut you off or tell you no one else wants to hire you but them. But often it's actually more positive. They're like a mirage in the desert. They tell you that you're special and that you get to be a part of a special club, mm. a secret society. Mm. And, you know, you can't tell anyone about it because it's super cool and special. And that's kind of how they, they hook you in. So this, this is highly, this is true, I'm assuming, outside the workplace. This is correlated with high narcissism. And narcissists like to create an alternate universe and try to get you to believe in it because they feel very afraid to live in the yeah, real world. Is true. that similar to what's happening in the workplace? Yeah, with this I person? definitely think some gaslighters are narcissists. Some are just absolutely desperate people that um, maybe are in a pickle, 
and they don't know how to get out of it. So mm -hmm. the example I actually talk in my book about is about an employee who started off really kicking ass at work. You know, she came up with lots of really novel ideas in the advertisement world, and then one day they just kind of dried up. And she got boring, and the creativity wasn't there anymore. And so she had to steal ideas from other people to continue to be seen as respected and interesting in a world that was super cutthroat. But the only way she could really recruit people to do this was to create this false reality and to steal things without um, other people finding out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, by by keeping her ideas very private and closeted. Um, sharing them with the one person who she was gaslighting the whole time. What's a good example of like a, a typical interaction a person might have? Like someone in this room could say, okay, that means that person was a gaslighter. Yeah, yeah I mean, so gaslighting is really tricky because um, it's, it, they, they start off small. Um, I can tell you what also it looks like to see someone else being gaslit. That can help. If okay. you're worried about becoming a victim of a gaslighter, um, they're going to start off with some small lies and then test you out and see how well you do. Mm. Right? They're not going to go full into false reality land. We're not talking about that person that comes up to you at family Thanksgiving and tries to sell flatter theory. We're not talking <laughs> about that person. They're small. They test the waters. They see um, how you do. And the, the most critical thing they do is they cut you off socially. So, you know, they discourage you from social networking. They don't want you talking to other leaders in the organization. They don't want you having, you know, idea sharing groups with other employees. So they try to cut you off socially while also at the same time starting off with white lies. People who are very well connected at work, um, you know, so, super socially networked, have a lot of friends, they are almost never the victims of gaslighters mm. because you have to isolate. That's a critical component to gaslighting is the sort of isolation piece. Mm. So if someone's trying to isolate you at the same time as lying, that's a good sign. Um, it, if you notice someone else who used to be really social is avoidant, and when you ask them how things are going, they, it's more an absence of information than the presence of information. Mm. They say, things are so great here. I love it. My boss is wonderful. And they used to be really open and outgoing. Mm -hmm. That's a sign that maybe they're being gaslit. It's not the presence of positive or negative information, but it's the absence of any information. Mm. It's not willing to talk at all. So they're like building this, this absolutely fake world that they can be successful within and think highly of themselves within. Mm -hmm. And they're going to go from person to person. And if you're a strong-willed, I'm not going to be gaslit person, they just abandon that and move to the next person until yes. they have a community of people who are in their made-up world. Yeah, I would say that most gaslighters at work don't have a big community of people they're lying to. That's a real risky business. We're talking small, you know, two to three people, mm. sometimes only one, because if the two people are talking to each other, they can fact-check, they can, mm. you know, check notes, um, you know. So they tend to, to really isolate kind of one victim at a time, and often what these victims do is they end up leaving the workplace and they quit and they don't tell anyone why, mm -hmm. right? And so they're able to kind of cycle through lots of victims without ever being caught because the victims rarely report them. They're terrified to. Mm -hmm. Often there's a narrative of if you tell on me, it's going to ruin your reputation here. I'm the only one that likes you here. Say a bad thing and you're going to be gone. Did you, didn't you mention something once? Was it, was it toxic optimism? Was that something? What is that? How does that? What is, <laughs> toxic positivity. Toxic positivity. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes gaslighters love people who are just very Pollyannish at work, um, really naive. <laughs> um, and the person I talk about in the chapter, um, I say I would have accused him of toxic positivity. He didn't really feel like there are jerks at work. There's just people who have bad days. Um, and people who are not at all cynical about human nature, who just tend to see the, the, the best in everyone, mm -hmm. they're, I wouldn't say they're easy victims, but they're ideal victims for gaslighters because they can control how positive this person, you know, thinks they are. And they're just really, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty cynical, pessimistic person. I'd probably <laughs> make a terrible, a terrible target because I would just say bullshit after the first 20 seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, there are people who just see the best in everyone and think everyone's going to get better over time, never worse. Yeah. And they tend to be really good targets. It's uh, fun to say don't be uh, so positive. Uh, the, <laughs> if you think you might be someone who has toxic positivity, please enlist the help of a, the most cynical person that's your friend. <laughs> Try to find somebody who's a, a real asshole in your life, uh, or they just are disagreeable, who can help you get away from gaslighters. Is that good advice? Yeah, okay, perfect. Good. Um, you also say become a particular kind of mouse called the grasshopper mouse. <laughs> How do I become a grasshopper mouse? What are you talking about? So one sort of weird thing about this book is I, I love insects. I watch a lot of nature <laughs> shows, too, probably too many metaphors about insects. So you have to kind of become immune to the sting of a gaslighter. You need to, f once you realize that you're being gaslit, the temptation is always to kind of actually run away and tell someone. Um, you're going to have to fight that temptation a little bit and get used to the sting and document things slowly and back out slowly. You mentioned a lot. Take notes. Yeah. Document. Take notes. Write everything down. Um, you know, go as official of a route as you possibly can to complain. I actually don't urge people to go straight to the top, which is usually what they want to do when they mm -hmm. feel like they have been living in an alternative reality at work. They want to tell their boss's boss's boss. Gaslighters are smart people with social capital, and people tend to like them. Mm -hmm. They're not just fooling you. They're fooling everyone at work. And if you complain about them, there's a good chance you're going to get an eye roll or a, like, you know, why would I believe you over this person? So you actually kind of want to start smaller within your own network, you know, people who are at the same level as you. Um, and don't start off by saying things like, I think I'm being gaslit. <laughs> you know, reach out for help to get, um, you know, advice on career training and things like this. You know, kind of like more G-rated topics that um, if your gaslighter finds out you're talking to people about, they're not going to completely flip out. This not initially. Already off the bat, this feels so bizarre, like that I'm having to navigate this world of people who are, who are weirdos and sometimes lie, sometimes not lie. Uh, t don't tell my boss there's a gaslighter when I'm asking for a raise. Uh, these are, <laughs> I feel this Game of Thrones world. You also uh, mentioned don't confront your gaslighter head on. Do not confront your gaslighter head on. Your gaslighter has already thought about this moment. Mm. When they get caught and what they're going to do, and they will hit the nuclear button, Chances are they will do something like call a meeting of the other leaders and report on how awful you've been. And they will have documentation Whoa. for this. Also remember that a lot of times when people are being gaslit, what they've done at work is help out a gaslighter do some things that aren't so great. Hmm. Um, and so they could potentially be implicated in some of this. This sounds things. like evil. It is evil. And so I think, you know, you have to just really slow play the kind of backing out. Um, gaslighters who are confronted will do recon and they'll go door to door to correct the reputation and make sure they get there first before you do. Um, and remember, they've been working in the workplace for a while if they've been able to get away with this. Wow. Unsuccessful gaslighters were fired a long time ago. You're oh, dealing no. with the ones There's a natural caught. selection taking place? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm scared of gaslighters in a way that I wasn't before. 
Um, this is good advice, and you can see the kind of advice that's in this book for each one, each one of these. Uh, I particularly like the gaslighter for some reason because this is something that takes place not just in workplaces but everywhere yeah. in life, and this is good advice you can apply everywhere, uh, which is also true of this particular person. We're going to move on to another personality type, the kiss-up, kick-downer. Uh, what is a kiss-up, kick-downer? What do they do? Kiss-up, kick-downers are sort of the ultimate Machiavellian co-worker at work. Mm. Um, they tend to thrive in environments where um, you can do anything to get ahead, and very few people actually do get ahead, right? Where there's sort of quotas of who's going to make it. So you can think of a, maybe a law firm where it takes a lot to actually make partner and only two people are going to get there. Mm -hmm. um, they make great impressions initially with leadership and with a boss, and they're very selective of when they actually kick down. So they tend to, they tend to only do it when other people aren't watching, and they, you know, they're a little bit like a gaslighter. They'll isolate their victims. If they do say negative things about you to the boss, it's delivered in a very professional way. So mm. kiss up kickdowners are not the types of people who talk shit all the time at work, who gossip, you know, who have reputations of just spreading rumors. They're extremely strategic. And the, the toughest thing about them is if you go to your boss and say, you know, David's making my life a living hell. I hate it here. They're going to go, what are you talking about? He's great. And he says good things about you, too. Mm. You know, what's the problem here? He says you're great. He loves working with you. So this is the little finger is what I'm thinking of, right? This is the person who's playing. They don't want to manipulate. They don't want to create a, a fake world like a gaslighter. They want to literally manipulate the reality. They want to manipulate the world. Yeah. They want to create the reality that they want to exist, and they're very careful about it. Uh, you, you say they can really read a room? What does this mean? Yeah, so there's a skill, and I've um, done some work with a couple people um, at the business school here at NYU um, called Status Acuity. And it's the ability for mm. people to look around a room and be able to tell who has social capital and who doesn't. And you can actually measure this skill. So what we did in our research is we had videotapes of real groups interacting, real groups with real status hierarchies. There were people with power and people that didn't have it. And they watched about nine of these videos. They were only 30 seconds long. And we asked them, who had status in this group and who didn't? And we're not talking about groups where people are like, you have status. You know, it's <laughs> like figure out a man on the moon task or something like that. Some people are really good at this and some are really bad at it. And if you ask them a year later, they're actually pretty stable. Mm. It predicts all sorts of things. It predicts being able to um, know how to impress the boss, to know who they can ignore and who they should kiss up to to know who they can talk shit about to the boss and who they should say nice things about to the mm. boss. It's a real skill to be able to read a room, to walk in, figure out who, not only who's in charge, but what other people think of you know, each other in that room, who respects whom. This is really interesting. So they have like the superpower, or they're just very good at, they know the status hierarchy. They know their place in it. They know which way to point. They know their place in it. They know other people's place in it, and they know how stable people's places are mm. in that hierarchy. So they know that maybe their boss got promoted because no one else was around to be promoted at the time, but they're in a shaky situation and no one's really that excited about it. So they can go in and like, you know, potentially help overthrow that person. They're really playing the game. Yep. Um, there's a, this is, leads to a bit of research that I love that you, this is one of my favorite studies. Uh, they're very good at finding commonalities with people in power. Yeah. Isn't there a study with, with like 70,000 participants about finding commonalities with people and the commonalities aren't even like real commonalities? So that's my study and I wish it was 70,000 people. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I know what study you're talking about. It's a lie detection study. Um, 
Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of research on how we like people who are similar to us, right? right? right. So I've actually done some Please research. Please talk about the study. The study is yes. really funny to me. The Would You Rather study? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what we did was we wanted to get people to like each other and to work well with each other, um, you know, based on what we call incidental similarities. So these are silly things. So you can imagine if you go on a date with someone or you meet someone at work for the first time and, you know, you ask the person, would you rather fly or be invisible? Well, if you both say fly, you're going to actually like each other more than if you both say invisible. Or would you rather, you know, walk 13 miles or run five or drink your coffee with cream or just black? These kind of silly things, we, we lied. We had everyone answer them, and then we lied and told them that they were really similar to their partners. But they're not similar. No, that, that part doesn't actually matter. Okay. You just need to believe you're similar. You don't have to actually be similar because, you know... People just, the world's perception, reality right. doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> reality so, is not real. I don't know if anyone's <laughs> told no you reality. this yet, but it's subjective, subjective reality is not objective. If you weren't, if you didn't know this, all reality is virtual and it's subjective, and the objective <laughs> reality is something we can never perceive one-to-one, and so you're all living in, a, in an illusion, and sometimes the illusion is mutual. Please continue. Yes, that, that was deep. Um, <laughs> so, so you just need to believe you're similar to these people, and then you like them more. Uh, you're more willing to talk to them. You're actually, this is crazy, but you're actually quicker at building like a, a, a Lego model of a little man with people that you have these incidental similarities with. You just automatically assume all these other things are going to come from that, right? We're going to get along at work, all these kinds of things. Right. So these kiss and kick downers are great at um, not necessarily, you know, trying to kiss the ring of people in power. So they don't go up to people in power and say, I love your work, you're such an inspiration, I want to be just like you. They go up to them and say, oh my gosh, look at that, we're wearing the same jeans, we're wearing the same shoes, how funny! <laughs> wow. You know, even though they probably, like, broke into their house and found out what they were going to wear the next day, <laughs> bought the outfit, showed up, and then just pretended this whole incidental similarity thing was going on. But they know that being a Cinca fan is annoying, especially to people in power. They get people trying to kiss up to them all the time. It's irritating, right? Yeah. But incidental similarities work on everybody, and they feel fresh, and they feel cute, and we like them. And yeah. so they, they can really play that game. That's great. That's great. I, I have a similar jacket to that right there. Um, the... Um, <laughs> The, Everyone has this jacket in New York, sorry. <laughs> uh, this person seems very dangerous to me. Uh, they seem like they're really good at what they do, and I feel like they have probably ruined empires in the past. We need some way to uh, work around this person, defeat this person, destroy this person, maybe. Uh, here's, I want you to give me some advice. Uh, I will throw some of these up at you, and you can, tell, you can tell me whatever else comes to mind. One of the things you said is fell, uh, find a well-connected ally, yeah. all right? Yeah, so often our temptation when we deal with jerks at work is to complain to our friends. Friends don't actually usually make the best allies. What you want to find is someone who's well-connected and they have what we call um, lots of um, small connections with people at work. So these are people who, you know, aren't necessarily best friends with all the bosses, but they know who works at the coffee shop, and they know who the tech person is, and they know the secretary, you know, they know all these different types of people who can help you get a lay of the land. I think kind of our temptation when we deal with jerks, especially kiss up, kick down colleagues, is to try to take them out. We need to first find out if this behavior is actually widespread or if it's just pointed at us. Mm -hmm. And a well-connected ally can actually help you do that. And these people almost never are holding a ton of power. In fact, I wouldn't recommend going to someone in power. I recommend going to someone who doesn't hold a ton of power over people, but they, they know a lot about different people. And they'll, yeah. they'll give you a lay of the land. They'll give you some sense of, you know, oh, yeah, this person has a reputation. You're like the fourth person they've done this to that I've witnessed, this kind of thing. 
Not a friend, though. We're, you know, someone who's a bit at arm's length. I love this advice. First of all, this advice, along with everything you told me, I, I can't imagine what kind of person you are at work. Like, <laughs> like, there's the game that's being played, and I can just see you slicing through it, lasering through this and not being touchable. I'm actually not very good at this game, but it's fun to write about. <laughs> um, Find other targets. There's another way to fight this person. What does that mean? Yeah, so I think you want to find out how widespread the problem is, and you want to find other people who are being targeted by this person mm -hmm. without actually asking them this, you know, sort of off the bat. So one problem with the Kiss Up Kick Downer is they have a lot of friends. So if you just go to people at work and say, God, you know, um, Bob's a real a-hole. He, you know, he hid all the ink cartridges from me, and I can't print anything, <laughs> and I'm going to get fired. You know, there's a 50% chance the person you're talking to loves this person, you know, because they're they're really good social climber. And so you have to kind of be very careful with what you say, mm -hmm. and you don't want to come across as a gossip. So you kind of need to ask a lot of questions and don't give a lot of data. What do you think of Bob? How have things been going at work with him? You know, ask. Don't tell people about your experience. And then slowly you can kind of develop a, a bit of a, a group of allies um, if this person is targeting lots of others. Chances are they are, and these other people might be afraid to talk. Um, but, you know, eventually you can kind of weed them out, um, sort out the friends of the kiss-up, kick-downer from the other targets. And then, you know, you really need to have that group of people before you go to a boss to complain. Because mm -hmm. remember that your boss loves this person. They think they're awesome. Oh, man. And what, well, what, is it, what do you mean by buffer? Yeah, so buffering is really important for all the jerks at work, and I think um, we wish we could just sometimes metaphorically push them down the stairs so we don't have to deal with them anymore. But the reality is we have to see them all the time. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was the advice number six, push them down the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but just, in, just in lieu of that, buffer. <laughs> I think there's little things you can do um, that we often don't think about. So if anyone's ever dealt with someone really awful at work, I actually had this um, in one of my first jobs. I rearranged my work hours so I didn't have to share a bathroom with someone. You know, that seems crazy, but I felt anxiety every time I peed. Like, I, I, my heart would race when I had to go pee because I didn't want to see them in there. You know, so these little things, um, sitting next to them at a conference table, you can do small things like switch offices, switch bathrooms. Um, if you have to have them in a meeting, sit on the same side as them, not on the opposite mm. side, but like one or two people away. That way you don't have to make eye contact with them. Mm -hmm. So they might be physically closer, but they're actually functionally more distant and there involves less nonverbal communication with that person. So you'll feel a little less uncomfortable. Do, do any of these things make you a jerk? In do some it, way? Like not wanting to make eye contact with someone? No, that's, that's totally fine. You okay. <laughs> I'm just thinking like, you should be worried if yeah. you go sit down at a table and everyone just sits two seats away from <laughs> you and they're fighting over these seats and no one wants to face oh, you. Wow. That's okay. a little bit of a red okay, flag. Okay, good. I, I need to, <laughs> that's, thank you for that advice. <laughs> I'm not going to worry about that for the rest of my life. Thank you. Or um, dinner or anything else that involves a table. Thank you. Well, oh my God. Uh, <laughs> now I'm looking back in the past. Eh, mm, well, okay, I think I'm okay. Uh, also, uh, I, I was surprised that sometimes you give advice in the book about what if you are a boss, and you had advice for if you are a manager of some sort and you suspect you've got a kick, kiss up, kick downer, uh, how should you like delegate and or give them roles within the organization? What do you have to say about yeah. that? So I think um, bosses who are at the most at risk for kiss up, kick downers are those who are really comfortable dolling out responsibilities to other people. And that includes things like communication between you and your employees. So imagine you're an overworked boss, and this really eager person comes to you. I'll make it a woman this time, Sally. Sally comes to you and says, oh, you look so exhausted. 
I know you have 14 new interns right now, and you have all these back-to-back meetings, check-ins with them. Let me handle those for you. I'm just going to handle those meetings for you. <laughs> Go to the spa, get a facial, you're good. And, you know, if, if you're that boss, you're thinking, awesome. You know, I love this person. They're, they're taking work off. You know, they're the person that read my column about how to get a raise. You know, they're, they're <laughs> actually looking for um, things they can do to offload work for their boss. The danger is kiss up kick downers will often use their social capital and, and do favors to cut their boss off from communicating with other people. Um, they become the go-between between the boss and everybody else. And once that happens, um, then those victims of the kiss up, kick down are, are, in a, are in a real tight spot because they can't talk to the boss directly. The boss has made it almost impossible. Everything has to go through the kiss up, kick downer. Mm-hmm. So if you're a boss and you hear someone offering these kinds of favors that basically ultimately amount to you being cut out of direct communication, it's better to even have like five minute conversations with those interns than it is to completely offload things like that. Because not everyone that will offer those favors is a kick, kiss up, kick downer. It's just a great tool in their tool belt. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have only a few minutes left, so we're going to lightning around the rest of these. I just really wanted to talk about the gaslighter and kiss up, kick downer. They both seem just nefarious entities that I've dealt with in the past, and I yeah. wanted as much advice. Also, they're just weird and scary, and I hope no one in this room are, is one of these people. But uh, the rest of them, I think, are much. Um, uh, I. I felt like when I looked at the titles of these that I knew exactly what they were, but when I looked at your descriptions, I realized I didn't really understand what I was talking about. So we're going to go through as many as we can with the time we have left. Uh, the credit stealer. Uh, I think I know what that means, but from a psychological standpoint, what's this person doing? Credit stealers are great for taking credit for other people's work without ever getting caught for it. Mm. Um, so, you know, that example I gave about the person at the office is pissed at you and said, you only get this raise because of me. Um, smart credit stealers will do things like give you credit for things you didn't do. So they'll actually credit underclaim is a way of self-promotion. And it actually makes them look really humble and really grateful to their team. Um, so they often kind of swoop in at the last minute. They take credit for things they didn't necessarily do. Sometimes this is work. Sometimes it's ideas. Um, you know, and they get away with it because they do these impression management techniques like this thing. I mean, one thing that's important about the credit stealer I talk a lot about in my book is we almost always think that we deserve more credit than other people do yeah. for work. <laughs> I mean, when I ask my students in groups, like, how much time did you put in? Everyone thinks or percentage, it adds up to 400%. Everyone put in 100% <laughs> of the work. So a lot of this tech, this goes down, you know, kind of solving this problem comes down to actually really keeping track of who did what, mm-hmm. um, you know, live, um, systematically, because the business of credit granting is actually a really tricky, sticky business, and mm-hmm. um, kind of half the battle is making sure that accusations of credit stealing are total bullshit. So keep good dealing rec- with actual. The best way with this is keep good records? Yeah, I mean, kind of keep good records, but I think you have to create rules and procedures ahead of time. Um, This happens a lot with remote work. In Mm. fact, one of the biggest places we see freeloading, which is going to come up, um, and credit stealing, is when we don't keep track of invisible labor. It's very hard to tell who's done what. Okay, what about the bulldozer? What what is this person doing? We all know this person. Um, So this person takes over agendas, meetings, outcomes, (laughs) sometimes by just being literally too loud, talking too much, but often it's because they have social capital, you know, they either held a position of power in the past or they hold one now, and they're able to climb up the ranks to get what they want. So if you have a bulldozer, you'll note that, um, you know, sometimes you have a vote for something and it ends in an impasse. We just can't seem to come to an agreement 
we thought we had a procedure in place, but this person is now telling us we didn't. You know, we mm. thought it was majority, now it's supposed to be unanimous. Or all of a sudden, you stop getting support from above, and that's because your bulldozer has actually climbed up the ranks, gone to that soccer game mm. with the CEO's son, complained about how things are going, and convinced them to, you know, stop the job search or to stop the project. Um, so they do a lot of, like, tricksy behind-the-scenes stuff. Like, how do, like, and how do we defeat them? Oh, God, bulldozers are... You, you, so there's the in-the-moment things you can do. You can learn how to speak up. You can <laughs> learn how to be an efficient speaker. Don't, you know, don't get interrupted. So one of my favorite tricks is um, Marty Nemco's traffic light rule. So you have one minute to make a good point when you speak up. Most people think you should talk forever. You shouldn't. You get 30 seconds to make that point. Then your light turns yellow. You know, if, if you get to red, people are totally zoned out. They're not listening to you anymore. So you have to make sh- short points early on, and you have to prevent yourself from being interrupted. So if someone starts talking over you and they talk for 10 seconds, they have successfully interrupted you. So those kinds of things. And then the bulldozer is also that person that knows all the passwords to everything, <laughs> that offers to do all that work that nobody else wants to mm-hmm. do. You have to put procedures in place to, to not let that happen, no matter how tempting it is to let them do all this stuff that no one else wants to do. I like that there are technological solutions to some of these. There are. Uh, yeah. what, this one is fun to me because uh, the slacker, um, the slacker, uh, well, give me your description, but there's one thing about this that I love very much. But the, <laughs> this doesn't seem like this is a jerk. How is this a jerk? You know... I use the word jerk loosely. <laughs> I think we're all, we all have potential to be these people. Yeah. Slackers are charming and people like them. So, you know, and by that I mean the ones that get away with it. They tend to be the group members that are great at socially organizing things, p- presenting other people's work, complaining to people like, oh, I just didn't have enough time, but I promise I'll do it next time. <laughs> um, so they slack off, they freeload in the kind of traditional sense what we think, but they do it with a smile. And they get away with it in conscientious teams, cohesive teams, teams that reward the collective, often because these teams will make excuses for them or they'll even work harder when they're slacked. You know, you think about um, a team of conscientious people and one slacker actually increases the amount of effort by like 20%. So managers reward teams with slackers because those teams go above and beyond to make up for them and work even harder when they're on them. Wow. Yeah. And slackers are good at being likable, so yeah, we, people we all like them. The, the friendly person yeah. that makes the dinner reservations. We don't want to kick them off our group because they're awesome. Wow. That's a nefarious one that I, I don't know what to do about. Uh, I feel like I may have been that person in a group before. Um, <laughs> uh, then there's the micromanager. Uh, the this is a person who um, well, well, is this person? I think if you is this a person who is evil or are they just uh, not good at their job? Yeah, that's, that's the question, right? So there's a million reasons for micromanaging, and knowing that reason is really the critical piece to actually solving it. So some, most people are promoted at work because they were good at their old job, not because they're good at managing. Mm. So when you come in and take their old job, they're going to want to make sure that you do it just as well as they did. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of that's the main reason why people micromanage. They do it because they're afraid. Um, they also do it because they've run out of things to do. So they want you to feel busy. So I worked in retail and, you know, I had a manager who made me arrange clothes by color. When you never need to actually do that, but she needed us to feel busy. Um, yeah, and sometimes look, look they do like it. like you're working, please. Yeah, you look like you're working. Um, or sometimes we have a problem what's called too many reporting layers. So there's a manager, there's an assistant manager, there's the assistant to the assistant manager. 
and you know, people run out of things to do because there's not enough people to manage, so they start to micromanage. So I think there's a lot of reasons why we end up with these people at work, but the, the cause is, you know, out of all the jerks at work, it's the one where knowing the cause is critical for figuring out the solution. All right, and we have one last one with the time we have left. And this one was one that I, I hated to find out they were, uh, I mean, I understand now why this person's a jerk, but I always kind of liked the neglectful boss who doesn't really, <laughs> I always liked neglectful bosses. Uh, tell me why, why I shouldn't feel this Here's way. Here's why you shouldn't like them. So micromanagement and neglect are two sides of the same coin. Rarely it's the case that you have a neglectful boss who's always neglecting you. Usually they neglect, they panic, then they come in and micromanage to deal with their own anxiety. Mm. Then you have to wait to see if they're going to follow through on all the arbitrary asks. Usually they don't. They leave, you know, rinse and repeat. Mm -hmm. So you're chronically feeling like you're not getting attention. They come in at the last minute. They, they freak you out, and then they leave again. Mm -hmm. So the neglect comes with the micromanagement most of the time. Full-blown neglectful bosses just aren't bosses. They're just people who are on paper are in charge of you. They don't actually give a shit, right? <laughs> yeah, right. The, the dangerous ones are the ones that like to also micromanage. So it feels good they're not around, but then they come around and they make you do And they freak that. you out, and they make you change everything you did, start over, and then you know, 90% of the time they don't actually check to see if you did those things. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, we are out of time, and but the good news is this is the last slide. So uh, this is a book <laughs> called Jerks at Work that you can pre-order and you can learn everything you need to know to defeat these people or if you are one of these people. I highly recommend <laughs> it. You are fantastic. Thank you so much for being my Thank guest. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the show. That is the end of the show. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher and SoundCloud and iTunes and Omni and Spotify or wherever you get podcasts. Just search for You Are Not So Smart. It will pop up. You can follow me on Twitter, at David McRaney. You can follow the show, at NotSmartBlog. Yes, it was a blog before it was all of this, so I'm stuck with that name now. We're on Facebook also, slash You Are Not So Smart. If you'd like to support this one-person operation, make it better, perhaps make it not a one-person operation, but also pay for transcription and other features, go to patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but at the higher amounts, you get posters and t-shirts and signed books and other stuff. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is by Banjo Apocalypse. And please, tell everyone you know about the show. That's the best way to support it. Just share it with somebody somewhere on social media or in person. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. And go to Himalaya.com. At Himalaya Audio, you can find Exploring Genius. That's a seven-hour documentary that I made about intelligence and genius. So I hope you check that out, too. All right, back in two weeks. New stuff.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.